Take your Bible, if you will, and open it to the 119th chapter of the book of Psalms. And don't worry, we're not going to be covering the entire chapter of 119, but verses 17 through 24. Psalm 119, beginning with verse 17 down through verse 24. Allow me to read these precious words to you, eternal truths from God's word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I'm a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. Well, Psalm 119, as you know, as you may know, is the longest chapter in the Bible with 176 verses. But did you know that this chapter in the book of Psalms was written with both poetry and beauty? Some call it an alphabetical poem. Why is that? Well, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and under these letters we find eight one-line verses, each beginning with the Hebrew letter that corresponds to its heading. And today we'll be covering that third letter of the Hebrew alphabet, verses 17 through 24 that we just read, each one-line verse beginning with the letter Gimel of the Hebrew alphabet. Yet there's something else that stands out when you come to this magnificent psalm. Perhaps the most well-known feature of this psalm is that there are several synonyms given for Scripture. Several synonyms given for Scripture. Here in this psalm, Scripture is called the law, the word, the testimony, the precepts, the statutes, the commandments, and the judgments. Just like we read in some in Psalm 19 earlier. The reality is that too much cannot be said for the word of God. And the man of God never tires of extolling the word. Never tires. I want you to know that here is a man of God who delights in the word of God. How blessed are those who walk in it, who observe it, and who treasure it. And so it should be said at the very outset that this psalm, when you come to this psalm, is all about affection for the word of God. It's all about affection for the word of God. And affection for the word of God grows in the greatest moments of affliction. Let me say that again. Affection for the word of God grows in the greatest moments of of affliction. You know this to be true. You know it very well. Where else can you turn for comfort and guidance? Where can you go? When you feel the weakest, when you're subdued by the trials that come, even when you're trying to live in obedience to God, where do you go? Where do you turn to for solace? And it's at these moments that we're asking God, please show me what to do. What's the next step? That's why we turn to God. That's why we turn to his precious word. And this is exactly what the psalmist does. Here is a man who is devoted to live by the word of God. But as he does this, he faces great opposition. In this psalm, we find both persecution and prosecution, hostility in opposition. And so my prayer is that we will be motivated together, individually 
to be a student of God's word with greater love, with greater affection. Living by the word is not an easy task, but the psalmist here provides six reminders for us all, six reminders as to what it will take for a child of God to be living by the word amid tribulation. I'll give you those six ahead of time. Verses 17 through 18 calls for meditation. A child of God to be living by the word of God amid tribulation calls for meditation. Mediation, sorry, mediation. Verses 17 through 18. Secondly, second reminder, knows alienation. Verse 19, knows alienation. Thirdly, prompts inclination. Verse 20, prompts inclination. Fourthly, awaits intervention. Verse 21, awaits intervention. Fifth, deals with accusation, and it will come. Verse 22 will tell us, deals with accusation. And lastly, it provokes determination. Verses 23 and 24. So let's look at the very first reminder. It calls for mediation. Verses 17 and 18. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. The psalmist here begins with a request. Close to 60 times as a psalmist make this petition before God in this one psalm alone. This is not some plea that the psalmist is making to a pagan God, a lifeless God, but to the one true and living God. And of this one true and living God, the psalmist pleads in verse 17, deal bountifully. Verse 17, verse 18, open my eyes. These are the requests of this man. Deal bountifully and open my eyes. There is a dependency on the part of the psalmist revealed in this request. Mediation is required because the psalmist cannot do on his own what he is asking. He needs help. He needs help. To deal bountifully at its most basic meaning is to execute, to do, to complete. In other words, do and fulfill only what you can fulfill and deal bountifully with me, O oh God. Only you can do this. In other words, he's asking God for help. And I believe this man is in real danger for his life. Now, why do I say that? Well, read the latter part of verse 17. That I may, what? Live. This is not to address the quality or the kind of life, but literally of life as opposed to death, that I may live. The psalmist faces real prosecutors. In verse 21, they're called the arrogant. Verse 23, they're the princes. Not only that, but prosecution, reproach and contempt in verse 22. That could prove that more was at stake here than merely the kind of life to be lived. At the highest levels, they were talking with one another against this man. His life was in real danger. I don't, I don't want you to miss this point, so please listen to this. The reason he's asking God to spare his life, to, to, to deal bountifully with him, is so that he may live and do what? Look at verse 17. That I may live and what? Keep, right? Keep your word. Keep your word. Even in the midst of persecution, he's not, God, he's not asking God to deliver him, to take him away from this trial like you and I normally do, right? Take me away, stop, please, ouch, that hurts. Please no. He's not asking God to take this away from him. To deliver him up to glory even. To take him away from all his trouble and dire circumstances. Just bring me home, God. He's not saying any of that. And right out of the gate, verse 17, does a psalmist confront us with a question. 
The question is, why do you live? Why do you live? Why do you live? My beloved, things come very clear when we're faced with death. Calling tech support, my internet's not working, that's the least of your concerns, okay? And what you're going to be eating for lunch, which I know that you guys are just now thinking about it, I know those things are chucked out the door. Those are not important things. What remains is what is most important to you when you're facing death. What remains is what is most important to you. And here the psalmist asks for life. And this challenges me. And it should challenge you as well. That he may keep God's word. How convicting is that, my beloved? He's asking for life so that he may keep God's word. This man is humble. And we see it by the way that he refers to himself as your servant, verse 17. He is submitting himself to the Lord's sovereign lordship over his life. Lord, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. But there's a second plea here that the psalmist is making. It's found in verse, seven, verse 18. Open my eyes. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. What this is, is a prayer for divine illumination. Divine illumination. The servant of God here needs to understand more fully what God's will and ways are. Especially if he's going to be allowed to live in these difficult days. You see, when you live in difficult days, you want to know what to do next. You want clarity. You want truth. And where do you go for such clarity? And where do you go for such truth, eternal truths, to the word of God? I mean, how else can a young man keep his way pure, right? Only by keeping it according to God's word. Psalm 119, verse 9. Divine illumination is needed so that he may behold, literally fix his eyes upon Wonderful things from your law. What this requires is learning. Learning about God's word. This requires thinking about God's word. This entails delighting in what you're thinking about God's word. And learning about his word. All with a view to put God's word into practice to read it, to think about it, to meditate on it, and to put it into practice. That's the end goal here. Again, what do you want me to do, Lord? What's the next step? Put it into practice. This is why the psalmist asks in verse 12, look back at verse 12, teach me your statutes. Look down in verse 26. What does he say there again? Teach me your statutes. And then go over to verse 33. What does he say? Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the very end, to the end. Again, a student of God's word, asking to be taught the word of God, that he may apply God's word. I need to be taught. You need to be taught. That's why you love God's word so much. So that you could put it into practice and honor God with your life. Statute speaks of the binding force and permanence of scripture. That's what statutes refers to. As of laws engraved or inscribed. As the Lord instructed Isaiah in Isaiah 30 verse 8. Now go, write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a witness 
forever. So my beloved, we ask God to teach us that it may serve not only ourselves in this time and place, 2021, but that it may be a witness to the generation yet unborn. The word of God is a binding upon our conscience. It is permanent. It does not change. It is engraved upon our hearts. And this is what we entrust to the very next generation, to the very next generation. Here, the law of God connects life and obedience, life and obedience. I want to be taught what God's word says so that I may obey. I want to learn so that I can put it into practice. I I want to remember what I heard this morning so that I may put it into practice all this week. That's why we come again and again. The beauty of the Lord's Day, the beauty of Sunday, that we gather together as God's people to be reminded of God's truth, that we may live out God's word throughout the week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, on through Saturday, and we come back again. How genius is it, right? That we need Sundays. We needed We need this day. We need this day. No matter if we live 40 miles away in Palmdale or not, or La Mirada, we need this time to be gathered as God's people to learn that we might obey. Is this not your heart's desire, my beloved? Going back to verse 18, it all begins with this prayer. Open my eyes. My beloved, without divine teaching, divine illumination, this book remains a sealed book. It remains a sealed book. As the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. It is the Spirit of God in the transformed heart of man that provides him with the capacity to understand, to discern divine truth. But as the psalmist put it here, to behold, to see wonderful things from your law. That's why there's a dependency on our part. Every time we open up God's word, we're dependent upon the spirit of God indwelling in us as believers to illuminate, to help us understand all that we read. Without it, this book remains sealed. And the natural man does not understand it, cannot understand it, because they are spiritually appraised. Oh, that this would be our prayer every time we come to God's word. Whether you read it in the morning or at night, throughout the day, open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Now I know that our life is not filled with the study, with the meditation and learning of God's God's word 24-7. I know that we don't live like some monk tucked away in some place in them hills 24-7 studying God's word. We have lives. We have children. I get that. I'm reminded of that. But that does not take away from our desire to know God, right? And his ways, especially because of the fallen world we live in. And how out of place we are in this world. That's why we pray, open our eyes, Lord. Extend our days that we may live and keep your word amid this perverse generation. As we read in Philippians 2.15, whom we are to appear as lights in the world. And so we pray for mediation. But there's also a second reminder that the psalmist provides That's at verse 19, living by the word amidst tribulation means that the child of God knows something a little bit about alienation. Verse 19, look at what he says. I am a stranger in the earth. 
I'm a stranger in the earth. Stranger refers to a sojourner, a temporary dweller, a newcomer with no inherited rights. It's used of Abraham of, at Hebron, Genesis 23, 4. It's used of Moses in the desert, Exodus 2, 22. It's used of Israel in Egypt, Genesis 15, 13. And even David here refers to it to himself as this in Psalm 39, 13, where he says, I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Abraham felt it. Moses felt it. Israel as a nation felt it. David felt it. I'm a stranger in the earth. As a stranger, he does not enjoy the full right of a citizen. He doesn't possess any land. Such a one is usually marked by poverty or numbered among those who are economically weak, who like widows and orphans can lay claim to aid. This is a strange land to the psalmist. He feels out of place. He knows that he doesn't belong. And others in this place are slandering him. Verses 22 and 23. Not only that, but the powerful are against him. So anyone in his shoes would feel that same way. And what is noteworthy in the midst in the psalmist is his dedication to God's commandment, even though he feels like a stranger. And what he's facing, his dedication is to God's commandments. He may not possess full citizenry or possess any land, and to him it's of no concern. To him, it's no concern. You got to understand this. When I read this as someone who came uh, from El Salvador, was born in El Salvador, and comes here to the States and dreams of being able to loan, a, uh, have a piece of land to call his own, it's a big deal. It's not no small matter. It's a big deal. And the psalmist here reminds me it doesn't matter. What does matter is you keeping God's word. That's much more important than you owning a house. Besides, there's a mortgage, mortgage payment that you have to comply with and property taxes, right? Yeah, we know all about that. This is a strange land to him. But nevertheless, his dedication is to God's commandments. And he says here, do not hide your commandments from me. That is to say, do not hide the understanding of your commandments. Again, it's a prayer for continued revelation and illumination of God's word. He needs divine enabling to guide him through this strange land, just like you and I need divine enabling to traverse through this land. We all need divine enabling. For many years, I felt neither a part of the U.S. nor a part of my homeland of El Salvador. I was neither here nor there, even having become a citizen of this great land of the free and home of the brave. I am constantly reminded, this is not my home. And despite the love for this country and how thankful I am for God, to God for bringing me here, I realize that this nation is under God's judgment. Most humbling to realize that the nation you love so much is under God's judgment. That's why I've come to study the life of Jeremiah a man who ministered for over 40 years. He began his ministry when things were looking good for Judah all the way until the exile of Jerusalem. The prophet Jeremiah, he lived a hard life, filled with hard providences. He was rejected by his own people. He was even threatened by them. And yet he was faithful to the Lord to give God's word to God's people. 
That's why I want to study Jeremiah. I want to be like him. Although Jeremiah's life was one long martyrdom, how lost would he have been if it weren't for God's word? He is told in Jeremiah 1.19, they, that is the kings, princes, and people, that's everybody, kings, princes, and people, they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. What an amazing promise he has given. That even though everybody was going to be against him, including his family, God would still be with him. Can you imagine living in a place where even the highest authority and even the people around you fight against you? Where they're not your friends? Can you imagine living in such a place? Is that difficult for you to understand that we are in that place? What would you do without God's word? This is why this has been a wonderful season. Can I say that? A wonderful season. Because it has allowed us to get a reality check, if you will, and sit under one of the greatest expositors the church has known. And each week, he's bringing us the eternal truths of God's word to us that we might apply them, that we might have clarity, that we might have comfort, and not give in to frantic activity like the rest of the world. And now, preaching to us that we might be one and baffle the world, how can so many different languages and so many different nationalities be under one roof? And did you see the children singing last week? And what John said about just a representation of all the nations? It's beautiful to see. We're reminded of the beautiful truths from God's word. And we would be lost without his word. Let this be a sober reminder to us all that this is not our home. And we, like the saints of old, desire a better country. That is a heavenly one, Hebrews eleven sixteen. And yet, no matter what you face in life, despite how much of a stranger that you may feel walking about in this land, this is not your home. This is not your home. And that your calling in your life and in my life is to live for God. To live for him. To live for him. To follow his commandments. And be faithful to do that to the very end. To the very end. And each time that you come to God's word, that you will remember his commandments remind you of home. His commandments remind you of home. Listen to Spurgeon and what he writes. Quote, while we wander here, we can endure all of the ills of this foreign land with patience if the word of God is applied to our hearts by the Spirit of God. But if the heavenly things which make for our peace were hid from our eyes, we should be in an evil case. In fact, we should be at sea without a compass, in a desert without a guide, in an enemy's country without a friend. End quote. That's what it would be like without God's word. Living by the word of God amid tribulation not only calls for mediation, not only is the child of God familiar or knows very well what it's like to be a stranger and thus feel alienated, but thirdly, verse 20, it prompts inclination or it prompts devotion in your life. Verse 20 says, my soul is crushed with longing. The leading verb here means to crush in pieces. 
One commentator translates it this way, I am practically shattered by the intensity of my longing. Put soul next to this verb and you're metaphorically, metaphorically making reference to being worn down, being consumed in language. It really is a powerful word picture that he uses to assert that he is perpetually being consumed with what? With a deep desire for the word. Here, the word is called your ordinances. My soul is crushed with longing after what? After your ordinances at all times. These are better known in the Old Testament as judgments, if you have the King James Version or the New King James. The word judgment is a legal term. It describes a judge statement of what should have taken place in a particular case. A judge's statement of what should have taken place in a particular case. In other words, God's word describes God's statement about what ought to occur of what is right. What ought to occur in this situation or that? What is right? Well, God's word tells us what is right. This was a problem for those who worship pagan gods, you see. There was always a lack of assurance as to what the gods demanded of their worshipers. Pagan gods were notoriously changeable and could manipulate, trick, or overpower one another. You could have one God rule over one day and some other God another day. And you could never keep up with their demands. Pagan gods were also notorious for having twisted moral standards. In this, they were very much like humans. I don't understand why they made up these gods. They were very much like humans. Pagan gods could lie, cheat, steal, and be sexually promiscuous. Sure, they were portrayed as powerful, as though they lived forever, but you could never trust their judgments. God, on the other hand, is to be trusted. As we read in Psalm 19, verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true. This is absolutely assuring. I love this. God's word is true. This echoes what Paul writes in Romans 3, 4. Let God be found true, though every man be found what? A liar. A liar. I love that God is a judge whose judgments are right. His judgments are true. What we read in Scripture is absolutely the truth. And that is why they are Reliable. Reliable. It's no wonder that the psalmist inclines his soul, devotes his soul at all time to God's ordinances. I want you to see this progression that's happening here in these verses concerning the word of God. Think back with me. In verse 17, if I'm to live, I will spend my days in keeping God's word. Verse 17. In verses 18 through 19, if I'm going to keep God's word, I have to understand what it says. And so I plead, I ask God, open my eyes. Do not hide your commandments from me. And here in verse 20, if I'm going to understand your word, there has to be a passion in my soul after God's word. Lest we forget, this passion comes from a shattering of the soul, a languish in the soul of being worn down. Think of the context. What's creating all of this in this man's life? What is he in the midst of? Trial, persecution. Isn't this the case that when we go through hard times, we too experience this longing for God, this longing for his truth? Why do you think so many people came 
to our church during this time. They longed for God, longed for his truth. Because he's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense. His truth is the only thing that makes sense. We cannot forget that we live in a pagan culture where they don't get it right. They are on the wrong side of God's truth. They make bad judgments. Nevertheless, God's judgments are true and right all the time. Amen? Fourth reminder, living by the word amid tribulation, the child of God awaits intervention. Verse 21, awaits intervention. Verse 21, you rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. This statement couldn't have come at a better time. It really is a reminder to us all that we live by the word, that as we live by the word of God, we all await God to intervene. We're waiting on God to intervene. The more that the psalmist is emboldened by the word of God, the more he is at odds with the world, the more he has something to say about the time and place that he lives in, and he speaks truth from the word of God, and that just does not sit well with the establishment. You cannot remain silent if you love God's word. You understand that? You can't hide behind personality and says, I'm really just a, a shy person keeping myself up to a corner. I don't like people, all this stuff. God's word emboldens you to speak the truth because you love the truth, because you love God. And you speak into the lives of others who are around you. That's why we have community. That's why we have fellowship. We speak into each other's lives the truth in love. Do we not? And as you engage into the world, what do we speak? Do we speak lies? No, they can get that from the media. We speak the truth in love. We share to them the great gospel that there is forgiveness of sin, that they can be made right with God whom they have offended. By what Christ accomplished on the cross, living a perfect life that we could not live, dying in our place, taking upon our sin. And on the third day, though, he rose. We have the awesome privilege of proclaiming such wonderful truths. Good news. You give them the bad news, of course, first. They are sinners. They can't do anything about saving themselves. But the good news is Christ. Christ. We all wait for God to intervene. Here the psalmist uses a word that only appears 14 times in the entire Old Testament. The root of the word rebuke indicates a check applied to a person or peoples through strong admonitions or actions. God rebukes the arrogant. It's used of God. Elsewhere, the object of his rebuke has been the nations. Nations have been rebuked. Even Satan, Zechariah 3.2. Here, two people groups are identified. One through an adjective, that is the arrogant ones, and one through a participle, cursed are they. The former describes the insolent ones who assume that they do not have to follow God's laws. And so they arrogantly mock those who follow God's instructions and attempt to take away the rights of the godly by violent acts. The latter describes their state. One describes the insolent ones, and this describes their state. They are cursed of God who wander from his commandments. They want nothing to do with God, you see. They despise God. And they treat all that reflects his divine cause and character with contempt. The reminder to us all is that God is the ultimate and only avenger. He will rebuke them. But the psalmist must wait on God to intervene. 
and intervene, he will. But all in God's timing, you see, not ours. That's why the appropriate question to ask God as we're waiting, it's not why, oh Lord, why did you allow this to happen? Why did you allow this to take place in the political uh, arena? Why, oh Lord? That's not the question to ask. If you're going to be like the psalmist, you know, if you're going to be like the psalmist, what the appropriate, appropriate question is to ask is not why, but how long? At a time in our lives when there is no end in sight, the psalmist would say in Psalm 74, verse 10, How long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? The appropriate question for us to ask as believers is not why, but how long? How long? How long, O Lord? And then we do what? We wait. For God to intervene. And intervene, he will. You see, God's got all of this, right? He is sovereign. He's supreme. Over all. And over all circumstances. Over all lives. Over all nations. Over the entire universe. Later on, we see the struggle that the psalmist carries. Beginning with verse 84 and onward. Look at verse 84, Psalm 119, verse 84. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? You see, the arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They almost destroyed me on earth. But as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. You see, he lives in that tension as well. It doesn't mean that he lives outside of reality. He knows what's going on. He knows what he's up against and the the, the, the trials and the persecution that he faces. And yet he is constantly preaching to his own heart what he must do. He reminds himself, all your commandments are faithful. He reminds himself not to forsake God's precepts. As I go through this life, revive me according to your loving kindness, O God, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. The child of God must await intervention. The fifth reminder, living by the word of God, Amid tribulation deals with accusation. Verse 22. You're going to get it. We're all going to get it. The psalmist gets it. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Here we enter into the struggle the psalmist faces. Thus far it has been talk of the land and how much he feels like a stranger in that land. But here lies the core of his problems. And so he prays, take away reproach and contempt from me. Both reproach and contempt speak of the derisive attitude of the wicked toward the righteous. And so the man of God prays, take them away from me. He is the recipient of verbal attacks, of slander, of arrogant men maligning his character, all because of his obedience to God's word. What a sober reminder to us all that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Finish it. Come on. Persecuted. A promise. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. And yet the reminder Paul gives to young Timothy is the same reminder coming to us through the testimony of this psalm. In 2 Timothy 3, 
verse 13, the very next verse on through verse 17, he reminds young Timothy, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and being become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What does he do there? He reminds young Timothy of the word of God and the importance of God's word in his life amidst the kind of culture he lives in. And it's going to get worse from bad to worse, from bad to worse. And what's going to be your aid? What are you going to be dependent upon? Is God's word. Our pastor is prepping us for what's in sight here, folks. This is all in preparation for what we must face or what our children may face. And we must be faithful. We must be faithful to the very end. Notice the emphasis upon the word of God amidst persecution and dealing with arrogant evil men and imposters who will perceive from bad to worse. My beloved, we are limited in our circumstances. We do not control the response or the attitude of this land toward God and his law. And yet we know some will wander off from his commandments. The reality of the church age is that there is going to be tares among the wheat, right? The reality of the church age. From Pentecost all the way to the time when God raptures the church. There are going to be those who wander away from God's commandments. Some will bring persecution on those who stand firm in his will and his ways. And yet we do not take matters into our own hands. And the psalmist reminds us, God, you rebuke them. You rebuke them. He makes an appeal that reproach and contempt may be removed from him. But there is no promise that God will do so. You see, God may have a divine purpose and will for his good pleasure and for our good and to establish good. But that's all up to God, you see, not us. We are but his what? Servants. His servants. Amen? Rather, the psalmist understands his part. Look at verse 22 again. What's his part? Verse 22. For I observe your testimonies. That's what I'm all about. I need to be observing God's testimonies. My beloved, this is where we live and breathe in the midst of persecution. We observe his testimonies. It is our task to guard, to keep, to follow his word, his commandments. That's what we're about. That's what we need to do. Lastly, the sixth one. You didn't think that we, got, we would get here, right? Sixth one, last reminder. We have mediation, alienation, inclination and devotion, intervention, accusation, and now determination. Verses 23 and 24. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Regardless of what he, of what he faces from arrogant men, even men in the highest positions of the land, he will still meditate on God's statutes. Notice the word princess. You have the English Standard Version as well. The term was used to speak of a commander of the army, a high functionary, a governor, or even a, a prince. Whatever their specific identity, we're talking about those officials 
who naturally have power and turn such power to not only turn against the psalmist, but they conspire against them, you see. They deliberate. They talk with each other. You don't think that's happening here? Oh, they're deliberating, all right. They're talking, all right. Yeah. And no matter what their plan, what they plan to do to us, or here to the psalmist, the psalmist resolves in his his own heart with determination that he will meditate on your statutes. For to him they have become his delight, his counselors. My beloved, how important is the word of God amid tribulation, persecution, and trials? Though this portion of the psalm walks through the experience of the psalmist, it really is true for us all. Amid all that he faces, the psalmist turns to God. He turns to God's word in which he delights and looks for counsel. And his plea before God is that he will extend his days on earth, that he may keep his word, that he may grow to understand his will and his ways. See, I pray that God would extend my days so that I may see my children's children. But in reality, I need to pray that I may live longer so that I may keep God's word. And so that I can give my children and my children's children a man who is faithful, a testimony of a man who lives faithfully to God's word, even to the very end. And so, my beloved, may I dedicate, I pray that you would dedicate yourself anew to the study of God's word, to meditate upon it, and watch your affection grow anew for his commandments. May you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord as we face whatever lies ahead. 2022, here we come. Here we come. We know that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. You remember this from our Lord, that when many deserted our Lord, when many deserted our Lord and joined the scoffers, our Lord turned to his own disciples and asked this penetrating question in John 6, verse 67. Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. So when hard truths and hard providences come our way, my beloved, to whom shall you go? Where is your comfort and guidance to be found? It must be in God's word. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we never be ashamed of you or your words. May we never displease you by unholy or imprudent conduct. May we never make the multitude our model, but you alone. Help us to love you as you have loved us so lavishly, so richly. And whatever we may do, may it be done in the Savior's name. For to him we live and walk in love. For your name's sake we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.